Let me encourage you to open your Bible. If you don't have one, grab one from the back table there. And uh, we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 1. Um, and we're coming up on the, the end of this um, wonderful and uh, first chapter. And next week, Lord willing, uh, we will finish up this chapter um, but today, we, we really look at this, uh, a grand transition in this gospel. We have, we have already seen the emphasis laid upon the deity of Jesus, the, the wonder and the marvel of Jesus, and we've had uh, God's witness, uh, John the Baptist, or John the Witness, as he's referred to in this letter, um, emphasizing and calling out Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now the, the narrative switches and it, and, it, and it pivots to focusing directly upon Jesus and his ministry and his disciples. And so in our account today, we look at, at this beautiful transition that John, our author, writes for us as, as he transitions from followers of John, the, the witness, who then turn and follow Jesus. And Jesus is calling, we could say, uh, technically the first, his first three uh, apostles. We also have Jesus' first words in this gospel come up in our text this morning. And I want us to, to look at this text with a, excuse me, a specific angle. I, I want us to look at, at five examples or, or characteristics of authentic faith. And I want you to see that, that these, these examples come forward not as just what needs to happen for someone to, to become saved, but, but how this should play out consistently. We're going to look at the fact that, that the ability to listen, the ability to follow, the willingness to learn, to share, and to be content are all aspects of, of, of in part, what, what leads us to salvation, but also what, what um what helps us to grow as we continue in that state of grace. So let's go to the Lord this morning and pray before we continue. Father God, I ask that you would give us great wisdom this morning as we look into your word. I pray, Father, that your spirit would move and that your spirit would convict our hearts. Father, if we have thought lightly of Jesus, Lord, forgive us. Lord, if we are walking openly in sin, Father, that you would cause us to repent. And Lord, that we would trust upon Jesus for the goodness of who he is to offer us grace and pardon and life. I ask, Lord, that you would convict each of our hearts to know that in, in having Christ, we have all. And that we would be convicted, that we would be challenged, that we would be encouraged to seek to grow in our faith with you, to grow in our relationship with you, God, help us to see that these, these five traits not only need to exist in those who are coming to faith or who come to faith, but also need to continue to be exhibited for those who have been in the faith for years. As we seek to bear fruit, as we seek to, to live a life that is honorable to you, as we seek to do the good works that you prepared in advance for us to do. God, give us great humility and give us great wisdom as we look into your word. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. The first trait or of authentic faith that I want us to look at this morning is that, that authentic faith listens. Look at verses 35 and 36 of chapter 1 of John. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now, last week, we looked specifically at, at how John has this, this confirmation of who the Messiah is based on the fact that the Spirit comes down and descends upon Jesus at his baptism and remains upon him. And we looked at how John declared who this Jesus was as the Lamb of God in verse 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we're getting another account, another opportunity that John has publicly declared something of Jesus. And he says the same and less. And before we move on to focus on this, this lesson of authentic faith that I want us to get, it's worth pausing for us to notice John the Witness's example here. At this point, John was a very well-known and had developed a group of followers, a group of his own disciples, men who followed him and listened to him and some who would help support his ministry. As one theologian put it, in the world today, the normal pattern is people seeking to be empire builders. People regularly seek to make a name for themselves by attaching their name to their disciples. Oftentimes, we usually hear this referred to as, as their coaching tree. Those whom they have trained up and now continue on their work. People do this same by putting their name upon institutions and buildings and so many other things so that people remember them. But that was never John's intent. He was about empire building, but not his own empire. There is not even a hint of John seeking to hold on to what he has been given. Instead, John holds his popularity, his authority, his ministry, his everything, very loosely. It's not mine. It's not mine to hold to and to cling to and to demand. Instead, I will hold, hold it loosely, for it was all given to me of God. Instead of trying to keep eyes focused on himself, John willingly pushes his disciples to look at Jesus. John here is this great example of faith, showing what it looks like to be satisfied with Jesus alone. Reminds me of Hebrews 13, verse, uh, the end of verse 5 and 6, is be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, if, if God has promised that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you, what have you to complain of? What else do you need? John had prepared his disciples not to follow him, but to follow Jesus. And at every point, repeatedly, we see John here calling out and stressing the greatness of Jesus over himself. Notice that the clarification of who takes away the sin of the world, again, is not included here. Which it seems likely that, that John has made this point very clear so that those listening would understand that when he says, here's the Lamb of God, it implies 
Who takes away the sin of the world? This is who this man is. In other words, he has talked about Jesus so much that he doesn't need to explain it all again. Because they get it. They understand what that illustration of pointing back to Passover is Jesus, the fullest Passover lamb. John is claiming clearly that Jesus is this great lamb of God who has come to offer up himself so that we may be forgiven. Which is the same basic message that Jesus made in Mark 10, 45, where he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But let's get back to the example of authentic faith that we see in John's two disciples. Go back. We see this wonderful example here that, that authentic faith listens. No matter who you are, how smart you are, how, where you were bro- born or raised, what, what your parents believe, your coming to faith always included the hearing of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. John proclaims Jesus as God's Messiah, and these men do not trust in their own wisdom, their own understanding, their own logic, which would have been, by the way, to stay with John. For John had more popularity at this time. John had more clout. John had, had, from a worldly point of view, more potential. Yet these men, by God's grace, did not trust in themselves and in their own wisdom. But instead, they listened to God's messenger. And they listened to God's word. Authentic faith does not cling to its own wisdom, but listens to God. Most of you have probably memorized uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 when you were growing up. It's this beautiful picture that's laid out there of, of us um, not seeking our own wisdom or trusting in our own wisdom, but leaning upon Christ, leaning upon God and His wisdom to make our paths straight. Authentic faith is humble enough to listen. The second picture that we have of authentic faith here is that authentic faith follows. Look at verses 37, the first part of uh, 38. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Now the focus here is switched, again, from John the witness to his disciples, and not just on them listening, but on them doing something about it, not just on them saying, wow, that's good news that the Lamb of God is here. What's for dinner? These guys are active enough to say, you know what, this is, this is, this is news, this is information that, that I need to act upon. I need to do something about this. And so not only do they listen, but they follow. And to follow means more than just to walk behind. The word pictures to to walk behind another both in heart and action. In other words, it is following someone with the intent on mirroring their heart 
their loves and hates, their patterns, their devotion, and so on. And so they turn willingly away from John, away from his public ministry, away from from the, the, the fame of this known one to this somewhat obscure Lamb of God that John has pointed out. And as they turn, notice what Jesus said. Jesus, turning around, saw them following. Now, hold on, let me just stop there for a moment. It's worth noting, whether, you, whether or not you are a Calvinist, whether or not you affirm the, the absolute sovereignty of God in our salvation, which I unabashedly do, the beauty is that Jesus never turns away anyone who calls out to him in faith. Never. Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you would turn and call out to him, if you would turn and listen and believe his message, you can be saved. Everyone who calls out to him will be saved be saved. And so Jesus saw them following, and he doesn't say, you know what, get, get lost. I'm not ready yet. Let me have some more time. Let me, let me go make some more tables. Let me, let me go do some, you know, some more of my hobbies. Jesus doesn't turn and push them aside. Jesus doesn't turn and look at them and say, you know what, I was hoping for better looking disciples. I was hoping for more educated disciples. I was hoping for richer disciples. I was, he doesn't do any of that. Instead, he asks them this beautiful question. What do you want? Now, in English, this sounds a bit harsh, but understand it's, it's not. A, a, a relatively good equivalent would be, what are your intentions? I see, I see you walking behind me. What are your intentions? Which is a fair question. I don't know if you've ever been walking you know, in, a, in, a, in an alleyway, and someone's walking behind you, it's, it's worth stopping and saying, what are your intentions behind me? Why, why are you there? Or you're just at home, and you, and you see someone come to your door, you open the door, basically, what do you want? What are, what are your intentions? Why are you coming to me? And this, this question is not harsh, but it is beautiful and simplistic. These are the first words of Jesus spoken in this gospel. And this inviting question was first made to these two men, and now it is made to all. To all who come to him, he asks, what are your intentions? Are you coming to me so that I can pat you on the back for how good you are and how hard you've worked as the rich young ruler desired? Are you coming to me in need of a Savior? Are you coming to me with empty hands? Are you coming to me, the Lamb of God, who can take away your sin and offer you life? Authentic faith follows. Authentic faith walks behind Jesus. But let's jump into the third one. Authentic faith learns. 
Look at the second part of verse 8, or sorry, 38. It says, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, by referring to Jesus using this title, Rabbi, in the Hebrew or Greek teacher, makes it clear that these two men's intentions are to learn from and follow Jesus as a teacher, specifically. They're not after him as, as, a, as a, uh, a way of making money or a way of finding fame. Their desire, their focus is to learn from him. And that's why they refer to him as their teacher. They're there committed to him. To be a disciple in the first century means rather literally to follow or walk behind a teacher and learn from them. By listening to all that he has said, to all that he does. God, I pray that you would comfort Oliver's heart, and you would give his dad wisdom and patience and encouragement, and you would help us not to be distracted, but recognize that you are fully sovereign and you love all of us. God, thank you for being good. Thank you for being patient with us. Authentic faith seeks to learn. They refer to him as teacher because that's their intention. Our intention, our desire is to learn from you, to know you. The fact that, that they asked Jesus where he was staying pointed to their desire to be his disciples, to watch him and to listen to him and to follow after him, to learn from him as their personal rabbi, their teacher. It is of great worth to notice that these disciples seek to know more of him. Jonathan Edwards used to say that it is the responsibility of every Christian disciple to grow and to learn to acquire a greater and greater joy in Christ with each passing year. To know more of Him, to see more of His faithfulness and more of what He has called us to. True faith is not pausing to give a glancing look at Jesus. But true faith shows itself by seeking to see where he lives, where he presides, so that you can know him more fully and so that you can stay with him. And how does John respond, or how does Jesus, I should say, respond to this desire? Does he respond with ridicule? Does he, does he respond and say, well, it's just, it's just a studio apartment, there's nothing, uh, you guys need to go find somewhere else? Does he respond with talking about limitations of himself? Or does he respond about talking about them? Does he respond by emphasizing their foolishness? Of, well, why didn't you come the first time John called me the, the Lamb of God? Does he go after them? Does he challenge them? Does he push them? Look at verse 39. Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now there's a really big point here at the end of this verse that is often missed. When John says that it was the 10th hour, as some of your translations might have it, 
or as the NIV simplifies it, about four in the afternoon, his point was that it was getting late in the day. Which means that these two disciples didn't care about where they were going to stay the night. They were all in. This is before flashlights, okay? This is before streetlights. This is before much of anything was done after the sun went down. And yet, seeing the sun already start to descend, these men understood that this, this was inconvenient, but it was worth it. There was no plan B for them. They were all in. It didn't matter if it was convenient or easy. That was irrelevant. Jesus, to them, was worth it. Friends, we need to be reminded that it is never convenient to follow Jesus. But true faith, trust that no matter how things look from the outside, what matters most is not what is convenient, but what is most valuable, what is best. True faith learns to determine value based not on emotions or popular opinion, but upon God's words and God's promises. And it's here where those who, who hold to an authentic, growing faith find comfort and encouragement so that they may get what they need to walk faithfully and follow after their first love. Even if the world says that it's unwise, even if it causes tension in their family, even if it may cause them their job or their popularity or their income or whatever it may be, convenience is irrelevant. Worth is important. What does it gain for someone if they were to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? These men wisely seek after Jesus. Not just to to grab onto his coattail. But they seek to listen to him, to follow him, and to learn more of him. I want to bring us back around, and this, this is a, a freebie. It just, John gives us an extra one. So let's look at verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. And, and I want to leave this in here and emphasize, instead of combining this with, with our next point, I want to kind of reiterate the fact that authentic faith follows. Because authentic faith continues to follow. It doesn't just happen once. To follow Christ does not mean to get up and come to an altar once. Authentic faith means a commitment to Jesus Christ. A commitment to follow after him, better or worse. To trust in him no matter what. To turn to him when we sin and we fail again and again. And to consistently seek to live our lives in light of who he is and what he's done. Now here we're told in verse 40 that Andrew, Peter's brother, was one of John's witnesses or, or one of John the witnesses' disciples who left John behind to follow after Jesus. And let me just say, there's a great deal of thought that has gone into who the other disciple was. So we're told that there's two, 
and we're told here that Andrew is one of them. Now, although many like to ponder who it was, and there's nothing specifically wrong with wondering about it or pondering it, it's a great dissertation paper if you're interested in one of those. None of you are. Maybe Michael. I don't know. But we have to learn as disciples of Jesus Christ to be content with the questions and the answers that Scripture gives. We have to allow Scripture at times to be silent and not allow our curiosity to lead us away from the throne. John, our author, doesn't care who this second disciple was. He never references him again, specifically in relation to John the Baptist or John the Witness, which should be enough for us to say, not a big deal for us to figure out. What's important for John is making sure that we understand that Andrew was one of the two. Aside from him, there is no way for certain of knowing who the other was. But notice again that Andrew had personally followed Jesus, that he had turned from from following after John the witness and turned to follow Jesus. And again, to follow Jesus doesn't mean just to give him lip service. It means to love him, to honor him, to seek to know him and to trust him with your life. Listen to what Jesus said in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Their desire is to know God. And what Jesus said in Matthew or in Mark 8, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. We know that Andrew here has made this, this great commitment to following after the Lord. And we're reminded of it here, and then we're reminded of, of our fourth picture of authentic faith in that authentic faith shares. Look at the next verse and a half. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now I love the way that John, our author, stresses the heart of Andrew here by saying the first thing he did. Now, we know that we can't take that too literally, right? Because we, we know that Andrew spent the rest of that day with Jesus, according to verse uh, 39. So the, the thing is, is, as soon as he had opportunity, after he was able to sit at the feet of Jesus, after he was able to learn from him, the first thing that he did in response to what he had gained from Jesus was to go and share it. Notice that Andrew didn't wait until he knew everything. Before Andrew became an evangelist, he didn't wait until he had figured out how he could specifically articulate the Trinity to anybody. He didn't wait to figure out whether or not, whether or not he, he, what kind of polity the church should have, whether it should have an eldership or whether it should have deacon rules or, or, or the role of men and women in the church. He didn't, he didn't wait until he had everything figured out before he went to share the good news. All he knew was that he had found the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that was enough. 
And that was what he sought to go and share with others. And he did so not so that he could boast about his luck or about his wisdom, but he went with the sole desire of bringing his brother to Jesus. Andrew has laid out for us a wonderful example to follow. When you personally find Jesus, when God reveals him to you, and you see the beauty of what he is, and you experience the grace that he gives, you share that with others. You bring them to him. You don't wait until you can answer all the questions or any questions that they may bring. No, you bring them to the one who can. You bring them back to the word of God and say, you know what, I may not have all the answers, but I know he is the answer. Authentic faith shares that faith with others. Authentic faith is not content to simply gain for itself. Authentic faith, because of the love that is experienced, loves in return. And the greatest love that we can share or extend to any human being is to introduce them to the Messiah introduce them to the Christ, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen, I, I love this with John Calvin. Listen to what he wrote about this text. He said this, that Andrew immediately brings his brother, expresses the nature of faith, which does not keep the light hidden within or quench it, but rather spreads it in every direction. Andrew has scarcely one spark, and yet by it he enlightens his brother. Woe to our apathy if we who are more fully enlightened than he do not try to make others partaker of the same grace. Woe to us if we who have grown up in the West and who know the Scriptures and have heard the Gospel preached to us throughout our lives who know more than just that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, do not offer and willingly seek to share that grace with others. Woe to us. Authentic faith shares. Let's look at the last one. Authentic faith is content. Jesus looked at him, him being Simon, and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. And this was a common way of referring to someone by referencing their father's name. Simon, son of John, is how Andrew's brother would have been known. But Jesus' focus is not on who Simon is, but instead on who he intends to make him into. He says, you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now Cephas is the transliteration of the Aramaic word, which means rock. In other words, Cephas is when he took the Aramaic and he said, well, I'm just going to take how it sounds and use my language to spell it. Okay? So Cephas is the, the Aramaic term rock. 
It's worth noting that the Aramaic term that means rock and the Greek equivalent term Petros or Peter were not used typically as proper names in either language, in Aramaic or in Greek. So you may say, I don't care. Why is that important? Why does it matter to me to know that? Well, here's why it may matter. Jesus wasn't really giving Simon a name as much as he was giving Simon a nickname. It would be equivalent to, uh, with our terminology, to, to call him, you know what, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore, I'm going to call you Rocky. Really what Jesus is doing is he's attaching, he's saying, I'm not changing, in a sense, who you are in your connection to your father or your family, but for our purposes together, you're Rocky. And you may not see it, and you may not get it, and everyone's not going to call you it. We have I illustrations moving out throughout Scripture where Peter is referred back to his name rather than his nickname. But Jesus emphasizes here on purpose that the giving of this name to Simon is not because of anything inside of himself. It's not that Jesus looked into his heart and said, you know what, I see wonderful strength in you, so I'm going to call you Rocky. Nope. That's not what he did. It's not because Jesus looked at him and saw his past and saw what he has already done and the strength that he's already shown. Instead, Jesus gives him this nickname in light of his intent. Not Peter's intent, Jesus' intent to give him the grace needed to be an important tool in the hand of God in the building of his church. Well, we will talk about Peter and or Cephas, Rocky, more in the coming months and weeks. And I, I don't know about you, but when I think of Rocky, like some of the things that Peter does... There's a little bit of Rocky there, you know, it, it just, it makes me laugh. But we're going to talk about him as we move throughout this gospel. But it's, I want us to go back to Andrew. Because Andrew's been the driving character so far in this little text. Andrew here boldly brought Simon to Jesus. And yet, it's Simon who gets the nickname, not Andrew. It's Simon who gets blessed, not Andrew. The point I want to make is that this didn't dishearten Andrew. This didn't frustrate him. This didn't cause him to have pause. He didn't bring Simon to Jesus so that Jesus could praise him. brought Simon to Jesus so that Simon could have Jesus, so that Simon could join him in his school under Jesus. His motive was love of Jesus and love of his brother, not love of self. In this book, Andrew shows a repetition for bringing people to Jesus, not expecting praise, not complaining if he doesn't get it. Who's the one who brought the, the young boy with the two loaves and the fish to Jesus? Andrew, 
Andrew twice in this gospel is pictured, and, and the only two other times where his name is really pointed out is when he is bringing someone to Jesus. He wasn't disheartened by the fact that he didn't, where's my nickname? He didn't care about reward. He cared about Jesus. He cared about being able to follow after Jesus, which brings us full circle to the example that John shows and that Andrew shows us here. Being content with the Lord. Being content with the fruit of knowing Him, of His pleasure. Andrew does not complain or argue or seek worldly praise or position. He just wants others to enjoy the grace that he has in Jesus. And he is content with that. He does not think that if, if I bring more people to Jesus, then that means there's less of God's love for me. He is fully satisfied with what he gets in Christ fully competent in knowing or trusting that Jesus is more than capable of continuing to love him and to love others. He is not seeking to build a kingdom here. He is content to just be a part of God's kingdom. I want to read to you lyrics from a, a song that I've been listening to recently. It's new. It was, it's based off of a hymn from the mid-1800s, but it's called Jesus is Mine. It was written about 12 months ago. So it's a, what we would call, it's a contemporary hymn, and I know those sometimes are dangerous, but let me read this to you. Fade, fade, each earthly joy for Jesus is mine. Stronger than fleeting hopes, Jesus is mine. Dark is the wilderness, earth has no resting place. Jesus alone can bless, and Jesus is mine. In days of fragile peace, Jesus is mine. Through tearful nights of grief, Jesus is mine. His voice commands the storm. His presence stills my soul. He will sustain my hope. Jesus is mine. When on that final day, Jesus is mine. Before his radiant face, Jesus is mine. Safe in his arms I'll cling, praising my Savior King. Forevermore I'll sing, Jesus is mine. When all else fails, he still remains, for Jesus is mine. Friends, authentic faith is content with that. Content in knowing that although trials and difficulties will come in this life, when compared to the glory to be revealed in us, they're not worth comparing when I consider the infinite amount of blessings that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 1, 3, and on, that I've been blessed in the heavenly realms with all the blessings of Christ, 
that if I lose the world or my family or my job or my reputation, there's water off my back because Jesus is mine. Friends, if you're willing to listen to the beauty of the gospel message that you are a sinner and you need a Savior, and that God has provided one and only one that can save you, Jesus Christ. If you are willing to follow him and learn from him and trust in him, then he is yours. If you will confess in faith your sin and his saving work, confess and commit to him as your Lord and Savior, then Jesus is yours. But if you have done so, true faith always works itself out. True faith always has expressions in the way we live and in our lives. And so, as for all of us who have already believed, true faith has to continue to exhibit itself in our lives in keeping us humble so that we continue to look, to seek out God's Word. We continue to listen to Him. We continue to seek to not only hear the Word, but do it, live it, to keep in step with the Spirit. And to continue to learn more and more of what he has called us to. More and more of his goodness and his love and his grace and his wonder and his complexity and his simplicity. And true faith shares. Shares whatever we may know. As much as we have been brought to Christ. As much as we know of how much blessing we have in him. We share it. We share it with those we love. We share it with those we struggle to hate. We share it with all. And whether or not this makes us rich or poor, married or single, happy or sad, alone or comforted, if we have Christ, then we are content. For if we have him, then what else do we need? If we have his promise that he will never leave us and never forsake us, what are we lacking? Friends, this is the wonder and beauty of the gospel. The wonder and the beauty of the, of the blessing of having God as our father. Friends, let me encourage you seek to grow in your contentment in the Father. Seek to grow in your understanding of His Son. Seek to grow in your diligence in walking behind Him and living as He lived. To seek to grow in your, not only your ability to share, but in your willingness and passion to share. Seek to learn that if I have Christ, that no matter what, I cannot lose. Let me pray. God, I thank you for the beauty of your word. I thank you for the reminder that your word gives of Andrew's example and John the Baptist's example of contentment in you. God, I ask that you would give each of us great wisdom and great humility to know that you are good you are sufficient 
And you are faithful and kind and just. God, help us to love you. Help us to turn again towards you. Help us to seek to know you better and to walk more faithfully with you. Help us to trust in your grace and to praise you forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.